Welcome to the official podcast for Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization. I'm Beth, a.k.a. Triumvir Clio. Hello again. Welcome back. I hope you're well. We're starting a new epic today. This is one of the most famous epics from ancient Rome. It's also my favorite episode of Wishbone. For spoilers, you can Google it yourself, or you can wait until we get to book 12, at which point I will share it on the blog. Um, It's available in three parts on YouTube. It's brilliant. Anyway, yes, today we start the Aeneid. I personally find it really hard to read the Aeneid without comparing it to its predecessors. After all, it is a continuation of the Trojan War myth. It shares similar themes and events, but like a younger sibling, it tries to find its own place within the mythology, so events that are thrilling in the Iliad or the Odyssey are merely referenced in the Aeneid. In our sophomore year, when we first read this, Triumvir Calaroe and I agreed that it sometimes feels like Virgil plagiarizes Homer and doesn't even do a good job of it. So as we work through the 12 books of the Aeneid, I'll do my best not to compare it to the Iliad and the Odyssey, but I make no promises that I'll succeed. Or maybe at least I'll try to hold all of those comparisons until we get to the end. Again, no promises. As you should recall from the intro to Virgil episode, the Aeneid is Virgil's final work. He spent a good decade working on it, carefully crafting each line, and then he died, leaving the epic unfinished. And if he'd had his way, that manuscript would have been destroyed, and we would be reading Ovid's Metamorphoses for this episode instead of the Aeneid. But Augustus intervened. As we saw with the Georgics, Virgil's writings are hard to separate from the world in which he lived. The Aeneid can easily be read as propaganda. It is designed to link the glory of ancient Greece to the glory of ancient Rome. But we'll see that the mythology takes an interesting tactic. Aeneas, after all, as you hopefully recall from the Iliad, is not Greek. He's Trojan. Just as we can read the parallels between Homer's epics and the Aeneid, we can also read parallels between Roman history and the Aeneid. And read this way, we see the glory of not only Rome, but the rise of Augustus as inevitable and dictated by the gods themselves. It's no wonder Augustus insisted on going against the wishes of the poet. I will be working from Robert Fitzgerald's translation, uh, originally published in 1981. It's what I own because it's what my epics prof required for class. (laughs) You should have no trouble finding any number of translations, either free online or currently in print. Now, the storytelling epics that we've read are Greek. While the Roman gods are largely the same as the Greek ones, they do have Latin names. So really quick primer here. Jupiter is Zeus, Juno is Hera, Minerva is Athena, Mars is Ares, Venus is Aphrodite, Diana is Artemis, Saturn is Kronos, Amor is Eros, Bacchus is Dionysus, and Neptune is Poseidon. We will see that Juno and Venus play very prominent roles in this epic. I mean, Venus is, after all, Aeneas's mom, so it's understandable she would keep showing up. Uh, but Juno is the antagonist. So hero Juno and, and Venus Aphrodite. 
So with that, let's take a short break before starting book one of the Aeneid. The epic begins by introducing our title character. This is a poem about war and one particular man who comes from Troy to Italy. He brings his gods to Latium and founds the race that will found the city that will become Rome. Propaganda much? After that brief introduction, Virgil calls for the muse to help tell the story of why Juno hates Aeneas so much. Once upon a time, there was a city called Carthage. It's Juno's favorite. She loves it even more than Samos, where her biggest shrine is. Fate permitting, and perhaps with a few nudges from Juno, Carthage will one day rule the world. But Juno has heard that some pesky Trojans might prevent that from happening. Juno hates Troy. I mean, you may recall that little thing with Paris picking Venus over Juno or Minerva that led to the whole Helen Paris thing and that little Trojan war thing? Yeah, that. Not to mention that time that her husband Jupiter kidnapped that Trojan boy Ganymede and made him the cupbearer to the gods. Juno has so many reasons to hate the Trojans, even though it's not Ganymede's fault. That's totally a Jupiter thing, but that's beside the point. Juno will do everything in her power to stop the Trojans. But back to Aeneas, who we've barely met in this epic yet. He and his flotilla are in sight of Sicily. Juno is watching. She taps her chin, remembering that one time that Minerva burnt down the Argive fleet in vengeance for little Ajax raping Cassandra in Minerva's temple. Seriously, Cassandra's lot in life? Can it get much worse? Anyway, Juno wonders if maybe she can do the same thing to this Trojan fleet. But that's been done before, so she decides to ask Aeolus, who controls the winds, to let all of them loose. She'll let him marry the nymph Deopea if he does, and Aeolus is happy to comply. The mother of all storms hits the Trojan fleet. Aeneas cries out that it would have been better to be killed by Diomedes back in the war. Far better to lie dead beside Hector than drown in the middle of the sea. The ships get tossed around the Mediterranean, separated, sunk. There should be a third thing. Eventually, Neptune notices something is going on in his realm of the ocean. He yells at Juno for taking over his job, and then he tells the winds that playtime is over and they need to go home to Aeolus, which they do. And then he calms the sea and stops the storm. Aeneas's surviving ships limp into the nearest harbor, which happens to be a cove in Libya. It's a cross between what Odysseus finds in Lystragonia and Ithaca in his epic, but we're reading about Aeneas now. Seven of his ships have survived the storm. They all disembark and collapse on shore. Achates starts a fire so that they can dry out their grain and maybe make something for dinner. While the crew's doing that, Aeneas climbs to a high point to see if any of his other ships are still afloat. He doesn't see anyone, but he does see some deer, so he shoots seven, one for each ship, and somehow he drags all seven back to the ships. Alone. In one trip. Seven! Seven in one blow! Valiant little tailor. Okay, my mother will appreciate that joke if no one else does. I digress. <laughs> 
In addition to bringing food, Aeneas gives his man a pep talk. He reminds them how they survived Scylla, how they saw the Cyclops, and they're still here. They can survive this too. He puts on a brave face, even though he isn't really feeling it, and the Trojans settle in for a meal of venison, wine, and memories of their drowned companions. As the day ends, Jupiter takes a break to survey the Earth, including Libya. Venus approaches him in tears and begs him to help her son as he'd previously promised he would. Jupiter gives her a very lengthy reassurance that Aeneas will reach Italy. He'll spend three years in Latium, and then Ascanius, Aeneas' son, will rule for 30 years. His line will rule for 300 years, at which point Mars and a priestess will have twins. You might have heard of them, Romulus and Remus. They'll be raised by a she-wolf, and eventually Romulus will found the city of Rome, and his people will be named Romans after him. Virgil conveniently leaves out the part in which Romulus kills Remus. Anyway, eventually these Romans will rule the Mediterranean, including Greece. So the Trojans will get the last word. So don't worry, Venus. Aeneas will get his due. It just might take a little time. Jupiter then sends Mercury to Carthage. He has a message for Queen Dido. She is to welcome the Trojans with open arms. Back to Aeneas. He and Achates go scouting in the woods when Venus, in a disguise that basically resembles Diana, steps in front of them. She asks if they've seen any of her sisters before starting to go on and on about how awesome Dido is. I mean, which is true. Dido is pretty great. Once upon a time, she was married to a man named Sicaeus and lived in Tyre where her brother Pygmalion was king. But Pygmalion was envious of Sicaeus' wealth and killed him. Sicaeus' ghost went to Dido and implored her to flee, so she quietly assembled a fleet and did just as her dead husband's ghost suggested. They sailed to Libya, where Dido founded Carthage, and that's why she's the queen. Aeneas is only a little bit of a fool, and he realizes that this is no mere mortal. He unburdens his woes on the goddess, who he believes is Diana, and she gets impatient and tells him to stop complaining because all of his ships are in the harbor in Carthage, and then she resumes her normal form, and you can just hear Aeneas the teenager rolling his eyes and groaning, Mom! But she ignores him because that's how it goes when an Olympian is your parent, and she cloaks Aeneas and Akatis in a mist so that they can safely walk into Carthage. And walk into Carthage they do. And what a city it is. To Virgil's audience, it might seem vaguely familiar. Kind of like, I don't know, Rome under the rule of Augustus? Oh, but it couldn't be, could it? No, it really is. We get a lengthy description of how beautiful and busy and rich Carthage is. One key thing to note is the Temple of Juno that is in progress. In case you'd forgotten that Juno loves Carthage. Aeneas sits down and waits for Dido. As he waits, he surveys the artwork on the temple, which is all Trojan War, and it makes him cry. Which makes sense. We'll get into why he might have both a little PTSD and a whole lot of survivor's guilt in the next book. Anyway, there is a lengthy description of the Trojan War-themed artwork before Dido finally enters the scene. She's not alone. She's accompanied by some of Aeneas's men whom he could have sworn he saw drown during the storm. 
Aeneas is still shrouded in his mom's magical mist, so he can easily eavesdrop. His men tell Dido how they have come from Troy and were heading for Italy when they got blown off course. Their king Aeneas is lost. Could they pretty please stay here for a while while they repair their ships? Dido, of course, agrees. Who hasn't heard of the famous Aeneas in the Trojan War? And Venus decides, finally, that maybe, just maybe, it's time to drop the mist and replace it with magically making her son more beautiful than normal. Dido is, understandably, impressed. How much is Aeneas and how much is his mom? The goddess of beauty and love? Hard to say. We'll probably wind up talking a lot about Dido and the interference of Venus throughout these first few books of the Aeneid. Yeah. Anyway, Dido and Aeneas flirt, and then Dido calls for a feast, and there's the usual formalities required of ancient guest friendship. But Venus still isn't sure that everything will go smoothly for her son, so she decides to grease the wheels a bit more. She disguises her other son, Amor, as Ascanius, her grandson, and sends him down to charm Dido, which he does. Dido is charmed by the little boy seeking affections from a mother because, of course, Ascanius' mother is dead, but we'll learn about that in the next book. Poor, poor doomed Dido. Spoiler alert. Dido asks Aeneas to tell his story, how he left Troy, how he wound up in Carthage. Well, Aeneas begins, and that's the end of book one. The Aeneid is not my favorite epic, at least when it comes to reading a story. I mean, honestly, the Iliad and the Odyssey are much more thrilling. But as literature, the Aeneid has so many layers. And this may be in part because something has happened between the time of Homer and the time of Virgil. Homer's epics, you may recall, come from an oral tradition. Remember all those points I made about orality? why speeches are repeated, all of those things. Yeah, that's not true for Virgil. The Aeneid started its life as a written work. It was meant to be written down, not read aloud the way the Iliad and the Odyssey were. So it can be incredibly dense at times because it's a lot easier to fill your epic with symbolism and analogy and metaphor if you have the time to craft each line again 10 years. Virgil spent 10 years writing this and he didn't finish. We can already see a lot of metaphor and symbolism. This is the story of the founding of Rome, right? I mean, it's not exactly about the founding of Rome. It's linking the heroes of ancient Greece to the heroes of imperial Rome. So instead of seeing Rome, we see a lot of stand-ins for Rome. First up, we have this storm. Juno is responsible, right? And then Neptune finds out and makes it stop. And this sounds vaguely familiar to the recent, at the time Virgil was writing, events in Roman history. There was a civil war, which, you know, if you think about a storm, what, what is a storm that divides a fleet if not a representation of a civil war that divides a people? And therefore, who is Neptune in this picture? Why, he is Augustus, of course, the politician, the, the first citizen bringing 
calm to the masses and bringing peace to the entire Romania, the, the entire Mediterranean world, the Pax Augustus, right? The Augustinian peace. But it's particularly interesting that Carthage is a stand-in for Rome. Rome, you'll recall, doesn't exist yet in the timeline of the epic, so it's not like Rome can stand in for herself. So that means at this time, the greatest city in the world is Carthage, which is a really weird thing to acknowledge if you're Roman. You may recall that Carthage and Rome were mortal enemies. Rome destroyed Carthage. But there is a logical reason that Virgil might have decided to depict Carthage as magnificently as he does. By making Carthage look great, Rome looks even greater. Stepping into modern day, you may be aware that there is a trope of killing the black man first in a horror movie. Why does this exist? Racism, obviously. It's clearly racist. But this is how that trope came to be. The trope of killing the black man first in a horror movie exists because racism teaches us that there is nothing scarier than a black man except, perhaps, for the thing that can kill a black man. Now you know, right? If you didn't know already. it's it, Someone wrote a really interesting paper about it, and I can't remember who it is, and if I think about it, I will try and Google it and put it in the show notes. If not, you can Google it yourself. If Carthage is so great, Rome must be even greater, because as Virgil's readers know, Rome destroyed Carthage. Rome is, well, I suppose the opposite of the big bad, the big great. Rome is the most powerful because Rome can destroy can destroy something that appears to be the most powerful. Yes, there are a lot of other things we could go into, but I think this is a good start. After all, we have 11 more books in which we can talk about the role of the gods in this epic and what that says about free will and fate in ours. And trust me, that is a theme that is not going anywhere. So what are your thoughts so far? Pop over to the blog and share. It's at triumvirclio.school.blog. The URL and maybe a link are in the show notes. Find me on Patreon as triumvirclio. That URL is in the show notes too. No pressure. Up next, we will read chapter one of book two of the Bibliotheca. If I remember correctly, it's not nearly as long as the last chapter we covered. I think it's short enough to be a Friday episode again. Anyway, that's what's up next. Talk to you then. You can join the discussion of this and everything covered in this podcast by following the link in my show notes. And if you're enjoying what you've heard so far, please consider supporting the show with a monthly donation of your choosing, just like public radio. And please also consider giving a five-star review on your podcatcher of choice so that more people can discover the fun that is Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization.